Hi, welcome everyone to this session on uh, credentialing, fraud, and other issues relating to quality and safety of patients. Uh, we are delighted to have a panel consisting of Gary Cantrell, he's the Deputy Inspector General uh, in the Health and Human Services. And we also have Dr. Hank Chaudhary, he's the Chairman and CEO of uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards. Uh, I will give a longer introduction to both my colleagues later in the presentation, later in the session. At this point, uh, I'm Amar Gupta. I've spent most of my career at MIT, and I've been involved in taking new technologies and business processes and getting them applied in countries around the world. So the common element is information technology. Uh, so I'm going to talk about my previous experiences, what it means in the case of healthcare and where we are going. And I'm going to talk in the capacity of an outside observer as, it, as well as as a patient, uh, what are the issues that we see. So about um, 20 years ago, I wrote a paper saying that uh, with five eminent colleagues saying that all healthcare will gradually use a three-pronged approach. And the three prongs would be people on site, uh, like the nurse, technician, family member. There will be off-site personnel, which would be a medical specialist, domain specialist, who could be in another city, state, or country. And the third would be computer-based techniques and processes which will be used, communication processes, um, computational processes. And I def we defined telemedicine at that point to be that the use of two or more of these prongs constitute telemedicine. So if it is one set of doctor at one place and computers, or it is people remotely, all this fell in the category of telemedicine. We did significant work on various areas relating to telemedicine, ranging from laws about what, uh, how telemedicine could be practiced across a country, across continents. We also wrote about credentialing issues and uh, malpractice issues in telemedicine, what could be done. So a significant part of our work, which has been done, which we have done has now become in practice. Uh, one of the papers which we wrote was that all the restrictions imposed on practice of telemedicine across states violate the interstate commerce clause of the US constitution that has now been generally accepted the opinion and recommendations that we made. We also uh, suggested that instead of people working at nighttime here, the doctors and nurses can work from abroad in a foreign country to look after patients at daytime and that's being used for an ICO unit and other situations. So quality and safety involves proper oversight, not only of organizations, doctors and nurses, but in this case, it also involves the computing infrastructure, the communication products and services. So it's both technology side, as well as the people side that one has to take care of it. And one is to institute quick measures in order to, if somebody finds any deficiency in any area. So COVID-19 has acted as a major catalyst for telehealth around the world. Um, generally, we find that a crisis is a time when things change very rapidly. Otherwise, it's very difficult to do it. The forces of status quo, the Machiavellian forces are the ones we try to resist change. Same thing happened in the case of 9-11, that when 9-11 took place, prior to that for many years or uh, seven years, I've been trying to popularize the idea of having the checks processed electronically, reading the courtesy amount, having it transferred by electronic means. But it would not happen. It happened first in other countries. It was not happening here. And after 9-11, when the place were grounded, that technology was immediately accepted because $30 billion worth of checks got stuck within a few days. So they instituted a new criteria after 9-11 for safety reasons. They said that when a plane is flying, it will be locked from outside and only the pilot and the co-pilot would have keys for it or very restricted keys. So we have a situation where a person who was a flying a Lufthansa plane 
uh, he, the pilot went out to the bathroom. This co-pilot was there. He locked it from his side and he deliberately crashed that plane with 150 people aboard. So this is a thing which happened where the safety measure, which was really made to save life, essentially led to lives being lost. So these kinds of things can happen across in other dimensions as well. Rear view cameras is another area where we have worked on. Again, rear view cameras can be very helpful, but they can also create problems. So therefore we need to think about how these kinds of things can be monitored, how they can be brought into attention. Years ago, we had done the same thing with safety of drugs. Uh, it takes five to eight years to get a new drug approved and it used to take two, three, five years for a drug to be taken off the market. And we developed new ideas based on IT, based on clients report, based on chat groups, based on other means in order to be able to trigger these kinds of things, alert people what can and should be done in this area. So with that in mind, I'm trying to suggest things which are being done, some of them, but some of them are radically new ideas that I want to suggest today. So here is a real case. This is, um, if you do a search on the website, you will come to know about it. As telemedicine came in, uh, it has been used for things which are unusual and un non-traditional. So in this case of this patient who was at a hospital in California, instead of a doctor telling the family of the doc, uh, patient, this is, that your fam family member is, is going to be dying. It was a robot which was asked to communicate this information to that patient, patient's family. So there was a big hue and cry about it, but again, people said there's no law, there's no system which says that we, we are not allowed to do that. So, so some people took the plea that this was totally okay, whereas others tried to say it was not okay. So around that time, we did a national survey of all the state medical boards, we sent a questionnaire to all of them, uh, the medical one as the, as, the, as the osteopathic ones. And we found that very few of the states uh, had anything at all in terms of the quality of care rendered by telemedicine. That was the status which it existed. More importantly, what we found is the whole attitude of several of the state medical boards. One of them wrote back to us that uh, the, Fed, uh, the Freedom of Information Act of our state does not allow any information to be given out of our state. Since you are outside, we will not respond to your request at all. Another state medical board wrote to us, oh, we know what you're going to do with this information that you provide us. Therefore, we are not going to provide anything to you. Third one wrote to us that uh, we were going to provide you information, but because you have sent us a reminder, we are not going to do it. So those were the kind of reasons. And even when they said that information is available, they referred it to a site where the information was all flooded with all other kinds of things. We were asking, are there any cases where doctors have been penalized? Uh, they were the people in the massage parlor, the beauty salon, all those people's cases against them. And the database was not retrievable. It was not, you couldn't even do searches on it. It was very difficult to do it. So over time, we have known that better technology has been developed, uh, better techniques have been developed, especially as telemedicine has come in. So we tried this new system here and we came across, we knew of this name before, here's a doctor who has been disbarred for practice in three states of the, of the U.S., and still he went ahead and got a registration in a fourth state, and he's also serving on the state medical health board. So we tried to see, let's take this as a test case, what happens in this case, and when we tried to look at it, we found that even though the central system was good, all the, the central system was taking us to the state system, then the state system had redacted material and other information uh, relating to passes there. So this is the kind of information which is giving out, it reminds me of the old days when, right, read-write memory came in and there was write-only memory, which, uh, which was uh, read-only memory, which was available. We used to joke around, is there a write-only memory which you can only write but never read back? This is almost an example of write-only memory where they're making it extremely difficult to do it. 
So this is one of the major hurdles which pertains in terms of any if a normal person wants to see anything, it's very hard to see it if they're going to redact so much information. The information is spread over a lot of different places, which is there. The other problem which we find is the interoperability challenge. These systems are all incompatible with each other. In many cases, the hospital system, which is a common phenomenon of the whole healthcare system itself. I've worked previously in the area of interoperability, and we've proposed it many times that something should be done. And there's a Fortune magazine article which says over the last few years, the problem has become even more acute. $50 billion have been spent on it. So the other thing which we find is that in some cases, there are a number of different agencies which are involved in the process in which you can take it. And the fact that number of agencies is not really a sign of strength, because I can tell you one example, uh, we are a, a major empire. Uh, the police were corrupt. They started a second level of police, which was a corrupt. Then they started a third level and they started a fourth level. The four levels of police, the only thing it did it is made it a very corrupt society. People had to pay bribes to force that. In, in fact, the thing was totally hollow and it got defeated very badly in the time of the First World War. So again, we need to think of how these things can be centralized, how a consumer can go to some place and receive some attention to the kinds of complaints that the consumer has. The other issue I want to raise up is that a lot of the laws start at a local level, they start at a village level, then they go up the hierarchy. Um, so in the US, for example, custody of children was, a state, was bound by state laws. And earlier it was okay when the father and mother were in the same state. But when the father was in one state, the mother was in another state, the judges in the two states would give the child custody to the respective parents. And a new profession developed of people who used to kidnap the child from one parent and give it to the next other parent. And then central, the federal government intervened and now this thing is still being played out at the international level. So here again, we have a situation where all these state laws are there in many cases. Now we think, need to think not only in terms of country level, but we also need to think of continental level and world level. And in fact, I find the European countries to be ahead in some of this thinking on what can and should be done in these areas. Now, let me give you some specific example. Uh, this is an example of a lady who flew from, to California because her husband was getting a job. In the hotel, she fell backwards. She fractured both her wrists at the same time. And she was taken by the city ambulance to a hospital. The hospital admitted the patient. And after admitting the patient said that we only take care of patients who are our own patients. We do not take care of patients who are not our patients, even in emergencies. That's what was openly told. And the persons there explained the system to us why this thing had come along. They said earlier, uh, the hospital felt it wasn't earning enough profits. They wanted to reduce not paid to doctors who were coming at night and the doctors did not like it. And the compromise which was arrived is that they will only look out a patient of their own hospital, not for other people. So they spent the next several hours trying to do it, send the patient to another hospital, nobody other hospital would accept that patient. And finally, the attending doctor said that I'm not willing to let this patient go because this person needs surgery and insisted that the specialist come. The specialist came very angry why he has been bothered at night and said, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, which was false because he actually was an orthopedic surgeon. Finally, the patient was made to go back to Boston to get the emergency surgery there. And by the way, this thing happened to my own wife. So I wanted to let you know, this is what happened in our case. And the emergency surgery was done many days later. So after that, people encouraged me to file, file the complaint against this person. And, the, and several agencies said that they will take very serious action. This is a very serious offense. Uh, everyone said the right things, but immediately when it was sent there, it was tossed around between different people, both of the state, the regulatory agencies, as well as the Board of Registration. 
And finally, one of them came back and said that we have closed the case. And I said, why you have closed the case? And they said, because the hospital responded to you. And we said, how? Oh, because you sent a complaint to them later, they responded to it. And I said, did you see what the complaint was and what the reply was? And they said, no, it doesn't matter. We only look at whether they responded to your complaint later, not the actual investigation. We don't have the resources to do any of the investigation. That's what was the way they handled this particular case. And the reply to me was that if you were not satisfied with the thing, you can file a claim in the small claims court. That was the reply which was sent to me. And that was considered to be acceptable. So I'm just giving examples of the thing which is happening in real life where things are not working properly. So we discussed this issue, how we should have better control on it. And one of the ideas which came up from my students and others is to do a repeat of what is, was done in the case of the uh, area of uh, uh, this, uh, in the case of students, what happened is the students would go to our university and there they would have this problem that uh, there was insecurity, there were thefts, there were murders and also a lady, she was raped and murdered in the first year at um, Lehigh University, the family went uh, and then they started a new system by which all universities have to give all information about the number of complaints which are received, not the cases which are found, but all complaints have to be done. And that's a national wide requir requirement that every university, every college has to fulfill now. So we probably need something of a similar nature. If these hospitals continue to do it, it's not just the official statistics we have to go for. Somebody said a city ambulance should have never taken us to their hospital. That would, hospital is known for doing these kinds of things. But a person from coming from outside, just as we are told, this is an unsafe area of the city, there should be no thing. So my students have proposed that doing it on the same basis, we should have uh, a way of doing it, which will take care of cases like Larry Nasser and others much before it got uh, uh, attention through other means. And they've written papers on it. And this requires the idea of patient reported outcomes, that patient reported outcomes, we can tag who's, whether this patient really had was treated by this person or by this equipment or, or anything of that nature and they record that information and make it available. And everybody will have complaints. It's like me in the university environment. We have complaints, one or two, but if somebody gets more complaints than all the other doctors put together, then obviously it's a matter to take attention of, irrespective of whether that any lawsuit was filed or not. Those are the kinds of things which might have to be done. The other area which is there is that instead of having the patient having to file things with multiple agencies, each trying to shirk responsibility in some form or another, it would be better to have a unified mechanism to deal with it, a unified mechanism which deals with all these aspects, ranging from people to equipment and others as a clearinghouse for it, to make sure that somebody acts up and takes attention to it. So those are some of my suggestions for consideration for uh, the next speaker who actually is from the, uh, is from the department, uh, is the deputy, Hold on, I'll stop. Uh, the next speaker is Gary Cantrell. He's the Deputy Inspector General for Investigations, Department of Health and Human Services. He has served the OIG for more than 24 years in a variety of frontline and leadership roles. Over the five, last five years, Mr. Cantrell's leadership of OIG's investigative efforts resulted in nearly 4,000 criminal actions and 3,000 civil actions and over $19 billion in fines, penalties, and restitutions. Uh, he holds a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Georgia State University in computers and, uh, and another degree in computers and information systems from the University of Maryland uh, University College. He's a recipient of several coveted awards. Now I welcome Gary Cantrell to make the next presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
So I, you know, I, I represent the Office of Inspector General and what just a real quick background as to what, what it is we do for those that might not know. Um, we oversee federal programs uh, run by the Department of Health and Human Services, and that includes Medicare and Medicaid. So as a result, the vast majority of my work in the Office of Investigations is the investigation and coordination of potential prosecution for healthcare fraud related matters. And so that brings us to the topic today of, of telehealth. Now we, uh, we in the OIG, um, we're both consumers of healthcare as well as providing oversight of healthcare. So we personally and professionally see the outstanding value uh, in, in telemedicine and the, the opportunities that it brings and no better example um, than during the pandemic, which uh, has already been alluded to, but this gave uh, CMS, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and Medicare and Medicaid recipients the opportunity to utilize telehealth services when getting out of your house, leaving your house was at, in and of itself a life and uh, death kind of decision, risk decision. And um, so we saw a huge expansion after the, the they, there were relaxed rules regarding the utilization of telehealth and Medicare. We saw a huge increase in its utilization. Prior to the pandemic, uh, Medicare rules for telehealth were very strict and, and, and uh, there weren't very many opportunities in which telemedicine could be utilized uh, in, in, its, in its truest form. But with, uh, with a change in rules, we saw basically um, Medicare sp uh, spending going from our claims uh, regarding healthcare services eligible for telehealth go from less than half a percent of claims to 14% of claims in May of 2020. Now that's that leveled off and it's leveled off at around 5%. That's still a substantial increase in the utilization of telehealth and Medicare from prior before the pandemic. Um, and so I think the question I think uh, everyone is asking themselves now, um, both in Congress uh, at policymakers at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and our office and across various uh, pro healthcare programs uh, is should these rules remain as is, or should there be additional changes um, to increase the, uh, reduce the, the potential for fraud uh, and abuse? Um, so that's, that's the opportunity, the increased utilization of telemedicine for the benefit of patients and providers um, with the risk that with this new medium, it can create and, 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 and can be a new vector for committing um, healthcare fraud. And so that's, a, that's our concern. We're trying to balance those risks and work with the department and Congress to inform them of what we, we see uh, in our oversight role um, through our audits, our evaluations, and our investigations in the, in the realm of telemedicine. So, so one of the things that um, you may have heard about, or maybe maybe not. Um, our office is involved in what we call the, the National Healthcare Fraud Strike Force. And this is a partnership between our office, the Department of Justice, the FBI, uh, the, the, the Drug Enforcement Administration, state Medicaid fraud control units, and, and importantly, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and their Center for Program Integrity. Um, these, we work together very collaboratively using data analytics to identify as quickly as we can in uh, emerging schemes. And when there's a scheme that arises, we look across 
the data sets to, to, uh, to include Medicare and sometimes Medicaid claims data to see how pervasive that scheme might be. Our analytics don't, don't convict people of fraud. It's not in and of itself evidence uh, of fraud. It's a strong indicator in some cases of fraud. So it, with this partnership that we have established, we can focus in on particular types of schemes. And that's exactly what uh, this slide represents. Um, in 2019, we had a national telefraud takedown. And I wanna talk to you a little bit about the scheme and how it is tele telemedicine in a way, but how really there is no delivery of substantive healthcare or engagement with a patient. And so it's not really telemedicine uh, at the heart of this. These are basic old fashioned fraud schemes that utilize um, the remote technology, in these cases, mostly the telephone. Um, these aren't high tech schemes to solicit uh, Medicare patients um, for services. These aren't medical prof professionals uh, soliciting these services. These are cold calls, sometimes uh, um, offers of services um, for free or reduced cost. And in this case, a lot of these cases um, involved the provision uh, and payment of orthotic braces for people who had no net, had no medical need for these braces. So uh, an elderly citizen gets a phone call who's enrolled in Medicare and asks, well, do you have joint pain? Do you have uh, maybe a problem with, with your knees? And if your answer is yes, they take down the information, the information regarding the sometimes the social security number, the, the, the name or the Medicare uh, uh, billing number and submit that to, to a doctor, well, we'll call them a teledoc for lack of a better term, who they're paying to sign the certifications for equipment. So the extent of the telemedicine piece of these schemes is in some cases, there is at least an engagement uh, 30 seconds or less between a doctor and a patient uh, with whom they had no prior relationship uh, to, to ask them if they would like these braces and then sign the order for these braces. Meanwhile, they don't even often submit a bill to Medicare for that, that evaluation of that patient because they're just taking uh, what, you know, it, what we call a kickback uh, in the form of signing off for this service and receiving a payment directly from this marketing company that solicited these patients in the first place. Um, and then these orders are, are, uh, are um, offered to durable medical equipment companies who are, are in, involved in the scheme to either fulfill or in some cases even not fulfill and, and deliver these braces that are uh, medically unnecessary and then the, the, the equipment is billed to Medicare. So this is in essence what these telefraud schemes uh, have looked like so far. Um, they are the, the payment, the solicitation of patients who's uh, for equipment that's medically unnecessary in most cases um, an engagement with a physician or not in some cases that is minimal, um, non-substantive with a person that they have no prior relationship to certify the need for this equipment. And then a, um, a, um, a, another company billing Medicare for a piece of equipment that they ship out to this patient. Um, the thing that holds them all together is a kickback scheme, one paying the other, each paying the other for um, the, the benefit of getting to that uh, claim to Medicare. So this is, you know, it's, it's almost a misnomer to call this telemedicine fraud because that's why we don't call it that in this slide. We call it telefraud. Um, but these schemes are national. 
they went, they evolved from the um, orthotic braces to genetic testing. And we've seen similar types of scams arising during COVID um, before there were vaccines available, before testing was readily available, cold calls to patients soliciting um, them for tests, for COVID tests, and then billing for um, many numerous tests that aren't necessary in terms of diagnosing COVID that were just ancillary in order to get additional payments for that patient um, and billing for services that were never again delivered in many cases and medically unnecessary. So this is this is the this is the nature of the types of schemes we've seen so far. We have not yet, you know, had any major cases that are a reflection of individuals taking advantage of the new um, opportunities to build in, in the telemedicine space during COVID. We are still analyzing data, and we're still, um, of course, receiving complaints and uh, hotline complaints to our OIG hotline. Uh, on a daily basis regarding a variety of schemes and uh, in, in COVID. And, but I want to uh, switch now to just a, a quick discussion about besides these investigations, our ultimate goal is to ensure quality of care, um, patient safety, uh, that telemedicine as, it's, as it continues to mature in Medicare, at least, uh, that Medicare um, is is aware and cognizant of the potential risks that that might come along with this and can mitigate them with uh, rules as appropriate to avoid opening the door, if you will, for large scale uh, fraud that could be uh, perpetrated through uh, a tele telehealth type uh, scenario. So we're looking at where we have currently we, our Office of Evaluation and Inspections and our Office of Audit Services have eight separate reviews and audits of telemedicine during uh, the pandemic and what it looks like. Uh, we're going to be looking at whether patients had a relationship with these with the doctors that they're engaged with um, prior to the, the telemedicine uh, event. We're going to be looking at uh, telemedicine and home health, what that looks like. Um, we're going to be looking at whether the types of claims being submitted are being billed for the highest level of service available or uh, uh, out, outside of what was would have typically been billed prior to an in-person uh, visit, and uh, a variety of different uh, types of care, including uh, you know opioid treatment, uh, as I said, home health, behavioral health. Um, this increase in telemedicine uh, billing has largely represented uh, standard evaluation and management codes, which are um, just a, a typical engagement between a doctor and and a patient. Uh, with about uh, 14 to 75% uh, being of that type and 14% being behavioral health related. So we hope to, over the course of this year, release additional reports that will inform Congress, the Department of Health and Human Services and CMS, and the um, and, you know, public stakeholders uh, and citizens of the realities and what the data tells us about telehealth during COVID to better inform what decisions they make on a going forward basis and how whether to continue these uh, open, uh, more open telemedicine regulations uh, as is, or whether they need to be uh, altered in any way to avoid additional risk. So this is a quick slide so you can see uh, how to connect with us and read these reports as they come out, review our work plan if you're interested, and, uh, and, and follow us in, on various social media. And with that, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you. If you can stop sharing, then uh, Dr. Chaudhary can go ahead and uh, start screen, sharing the screen. Our next speaker, thank you very much, um, 
Gary. Our next speaker will be Dr. Humayun Hank Chaudhary. He's the president and CEO of the Federation of State Medical Boards, which represents the nation's state medical boards and co-owns the United States Medical Licensing Examination, USMED. He's a graduate of NYU, NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine and Harvard School of Public Health. Um, after working in medical field and leadership, he also spent 14 years with the US Air Force, rising to the rank of major. A past president of the American College of Osteopathic Internist, he's the author of co-author or co-author of more than 50, 75 peer-reviewed papers in journals. And he's going to talk about some of the new things that he has done during his tenure at FSMP. Welcome, Hank. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you all today. Uh, let me begin by applauding the OIG's efforts to protect our nation. I think that's very important what uh, Gary, you and your staff do. Um, let me talk a little bit about what the FSMB is in case not all of you know about it. The Federation of State Medical Boards was founded back in 1912 by the nation state and territorial licensing boards. There are 70 of them now, uh, representing all 50 states and territories as well. The primary mission of the state licensing board is to protect the public through licensing, discipline when appropriate, and regulation of more than a million physicians, about 150,000 physician assistants, and other healthcare professions, depending upon the jurisdiction. The FSMB does not issue licenses or discipline doctors, but our member boards certainly do that. They've been doing it since the nation was founded. In fact, state boards existed even before the nation was founded when there were colonial boards of medicine. And so they operate under the 10th Amendment. The FSMB, my organization, supports our nation's state licensing boards through education, assessment, research, and advocacy, and promoting regulatory best practices. Uh, when we issue policy statements on whether it's the opioid epidemic or clinician wellness, um, we're very careful in what we say because oftentimes our policies become state law, sometimes verbatim. So as you heard uh, both Amar and Gary talk about uh, the and allude to, the pandemic certainly was a watershed moment for telehealth and telemedicine in the United States. If you look at this graph, and I'd like to credit my colleague, Dr. Michael Barnett at Harvard School of Public Health for uh, putting this together for me. Um, the use of telemedicine prior to the pandemic was de minimis. It was less than 1% of all healthcare encounters. Um, this all began to change, obviously, after the WHO declared the pandemic and uh, President Trump declared a national emergency. And then many states and territories, in fact, nearly all of them, also declared a public health emergency. That allowed for not only the practice of medicine across state lines, in person and through telemedicine, but also, as you know, CMS to uh, modify um, some of their um, payment requirements. HIPAA requirements were uh, relaxed to enable the practice of medicine to occur. And, and you can see how it was quite timely because the number of in-person visits uh, precipitously went down and the number of telemedicine visits precipitously went up, uh, representing almost uh, uh, 30 weekly visits per thousand members. Uh, in some graphs I've seen, by the way, there's a two month period where there are actually more telemedicine visits in at least 34 health systems than in-person visits. But as you see, after that critical period when the Northeast was um, the epicenter of the pandemic globally, uh, things have stabilized a bit. Telemedicine isn't being utilized 
to the extent that we saw during that peak, but it certainly is at higher levels than it was uh, before the pandemic. And like OIG and HHS, we recognize the value of telemedicine. We recognize the role that it plays in continuity. We just wanna make sure it's done in a way that uh, is safe and effective and does not lead to fraud and abuse. So one of the questions I get um, in my role is uh, what's gonna happen after the pandemic is over? Um, the states have re relaxed the rules for the practice of medicine across state lines in person or through telemedicine. And um, obviously every state can do what it wishes. The FSMB has put together a work group and we have started putting together some recommendations for the nation's boards so that by the time we get to the end of this pandemic, uh, which will end at some point, we want to make sure there's some sense of uh, a consensus on how best to move forward. But in the meantime, states like Idaho uh, really have enjoyed their experiences with allowing uh, the practice of medicine and have set up a registration process for physicians outside the state. Other states like Florida have said that, uh, um, you know, they're at least recently, until recently, they said that uh, they're going to go back to the way things were. If you want to practice medicine or telemedicine in Florida, you're going to have to get a license to practice there. Uh, so one of the things that exists that predates the pandemic is the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. I have no way of assessing whether the people watching this broadcast um, are familiar with this uh, situation, but uh, this started back in 2017, April of 2017 to be specific. Um, we now have 33 states, the District of Columbia and Guam have enacted model legislation to put this into practice. And those are the states indicated in dark blue. The light blue states are the states, six states that in 2021 introduced legislation to adopt the compact. And so what the compact does is the state boards have agreed um, that if a physician, a licensed physician meets nine criteria, these states in dark blue have agreed to issue licenses to practice medicine, either full medicine or telemedicine instantly. So what that means is if you meet the nine criteria as a physician, you simply check off which state you want to practice medicine in. And by law, those states are obligated to instantly issue that license. Now you still have to pay the fees. And we hope that through economies of scale, those fees can be relaxed and reduced, but that's not something the FSMB is in charge of. This is run entirely by the state licensing boards. And so this is a means by which certainly um, uh, the, the physicians who want to practice in telemedicine or simply practice across state lines can certainly do so. Um, I'm not gonna go through all of the specific requirements. There are nine uh, requirements for the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. I will say that according to FSMB's data, 80% um, of the nation's physicians should be able to meet these criteria. If you look at the very bottom, pretty straightforward, no criminal history, no disciplinary action, never had a, um, a, a controlled substance license or permit suspended or revoked by DEA, and not under active investigation, along with others, some, some sensible requirements that are in place. Now, what happens if you're a physician who doesn't meet these nine requirements? Well, there's nothing to stop you from getting 50 licenses, um, except you'd have to do it one state at a time. So we see the medical compact as sort of a TSA pre-check by which interested physicians who are participating in this can actually get multiple licenses. Um, the Federation of State Medical Boards gets a lot of data uh, from a number of sources. So we have a physician data center that houses that data. We get data from the state licensing boards, of course, the licensing exam that you heard Amar mention, specialty board certification data, PA data, 
DEA data. We have a very good working relationship with HHS, CMS, uh, DEA, as well as with many other branches of government, including the VA. Um, and so we rely on the Medicare and Medicaid exclusion data, uh, which is also very helpful in making sure the state boards are aware when federal action is taken against a physician. Anytime there's a complaint against a physician, if the complaint warrants a criminal uh, investigation as well, the state boards work hand in hand with law enforcement authorities and law enforcement authorities will often take over the case if a, a crime is potentially uh, alleged. Uh, this brings me to my last couple of slides. Um, one of the things we did, because we have such a good database and we've had it for about 20 years, the state boards upload their data, both for licensure and discipline, almost on a daily basis. Uh, in some cases, we got a grant from HRSA uh, this, during this pandemic to put together something called Provider Bridge. Um, and the goals are to establish communication pathways in a national emergency to make sure that hospitals, employers, health systems, and licensing boards have verifiable, accurate information, not only about doctors, but also about nurses, PAs, and other health practitioners. So we, we've developed a new technology platform at the FSMB as part of this grant. We've expanded the technology platform to include other health professionals, not just doctors, and we're currently providing outreach and education. The idea is that this site, which would be housed at HHS, would be available in any national emergency to allow the flow of physicians and other health providers across states to help when there's a need. Uh, finally, fraud prevention efforts. This is my last slide. Um, as you heard uh, Mr. Contrell mentioned, there have been several high profile fraud cases involving telemedicine technology that's emerged during the pandemic. Um, when, when you see such an uptick in telemedicine usage, uh, it was al al almost inevitable that there would be these types of cases uh, defendants in these cases have included licensed medical professionals, and they have had not only the licenses revoked, but in many cases uh, been imprisoned as a result of their actions um, and or fined. The CMS's Center for Program Integrity, Integrity is accountable for the prevention and detection of fraud, waste, abuse, and errors in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Uh, they draw on data from several uh, sources, including from the FSMB. The FSMB provides licensure and disciplinary data for physicians and PAs that is used in the CPI's APS tool to be able to do that. I'll just give you a quick a couple of examples. Uh, clearly, HHS and CMS are uh, cracking down on providers who bill for telemedicine um, services that do not occur, certainly. And there have been two high-profile cases in September of last year, 395 defendants were charged across 51 federal jurisdictions for fraudulent claims. A hundred of them were healthcare professionals. Uh, many of them were charged with submitting um, upwards of $6 billion in false and fraudulent claims. And then in May of this year, uh, DOJ charged 14 people, including physicians for $143 million in false billing. So we continue to work with our uh, law enforcement authorities at the state and federal level to do what we can to protect the integrity of the system and look out for the health of our nation. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so now if you can stop sharing the screen, Hank. I did. Okay, great, thank you. Um, We're going to have a few questions. Uh, the first question I'd like to ask is that um, in the case of the Federation of State Medical Boards, when we were interviewing people in different state medical boards, uh, some of them expressed the feeling that our money is coming mainly from the money that we earn from the applications that the students submit. That's our main source of income. And we don't have the resources to really do in-depth analysis of all the complaints that we receive. 
Therefore, we have to prioritize the complaints which we receive and we take the ones which have a broader implication. Uh, how would you react to that thing? Because if people are being reimbursed mainly from the uh, applying for registration, if they're going to fill up less applications, then maybe they'll have to spend less money on the different state medical boards. Have you encountered that issue coming up? Or are these ex people expected to pay the fees to all the states in which they're going to get licensed? So Mar, you've raised several points there. So let me try to do my best to address them. Uh, the state boards do not get any revenue from the licensing examination fees. Uh, that's something that the Federation puts together on behalf of the state boards. And we use the margins from that to enable us to do services on behalf of our state boards. Okay. The state boards charge licensure fees, and this is true across all the health professions. And that's not to line their pockets, uh, uh, certainly. That's uh, to enable the uh, investigations to occur when there is a legitimate complaint. Complaints are received in every jurisdiction, every state board across the country, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, you name it. And uh, you need resources, you need staffing, you need time, you need money to be spent to investigate, to make sure there's due process uh, and to make sure that the right sort of action is taken. So the money I've explained to doctors looks out for the profession, if you will, as it also looks out for the public. Uh, and then third, uh, as it relates to the fees, every state has its own fee. They vary, they're not annual. In some cases they're every two years, every three years. Um, my hope with the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact, as I've said, is they've issued 20,000 licenses since that uh, TSA pre-checks type of system was put in place by 2017. Um, we've seen a significant uptake in the, during the pandemic, uh, principally for telemedicine. Um, we hope through economies of scale that um, the cost for that will go down. It is not something I control. It is up to the states and the governors and the territories. Well, my question is that because the rate would be probably less now for the interstate commerce compact license, as opposed to their paying the licensing fees for 40 states. Therefore, the revenues of the state medical boards would decrease. And that was already their complaint that we could not really do investigations, all the cases we want to do, we have to prioritize them because we don't have the resources to investigate in the detail. So in some ways, this will be further degraded in terms of the ability of them to be able to investigate these cases properly. That was the main reason that they cited why they are not taking all the cases. So Mark, um, if I could, there may have been mis misunderstanding on the, on the part of the person you spoke with. Each of the state boards, whether they issue the license through the usual process or through the compact, can charge whatever fee they wish. Okay. Um, and so uh, just because someone is going through the compact doesn't mean that it's a free ride that uh, okay. they get a license for free. So there is revenue, there is licensing fees for uh, any license issued by the state boards, um, which should be sufficient to meet their needs, but there's never enough resources to do all the things that they would like to do. They're certainly not at the point of service. They can't monitor the internet. There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation going on, as you know, uh, but we do the best we can. It's a complaint-based system. And right. so the, the process begins with a complaint. Well, my last question to you is, has this issue ever been raised that these state medical boards and, and including your organization, they should be funded more by government agencies in order to do this job of patient safety better. That's that's my last question to you. So I didn't catch that. I mean, the, the government the, itself picking up some of the costs of the state medical boards instead of it coming totally through licensing fees. So uh, again, that's not the way the states are set up. Uh, okay. The state medical boards, the fees go to the state coffers. The state governments run that. It is not something that, I mean, the FSMB supports our state boards by doing a lot of the things they can't do. One of them is in the area of research, 
Another is in the area of advocacy and policy development. So that's one way in which we do utilize our monies to support our state boards who don't have the time or resources often. No, to my question was different. Committees my, and my question was different. A state like Massachusetts, for example, yes. using the state revenues to pay for the state medical board of Massachusetts, for example, rather than depending those kind of issues is what I'm saying they've been raised in order to improve the safety of patients. That's, that's so, Mar, it's an interesting question, but it's almost a jurisdictional issue. Okay. Um, it's, it, it's, it doesn't, it sounds easy, but it, that's not the way that it works. Uh, but I'm happy to speak to you about that offline. Okay, great. Um, Gary, I wanted to ask you this question that uh, in the area of healthcare, especially when we talk with telemedicine, new issues of cybersecurity, new issues of data privacy comes up. Temporarily, some of those regulations have been put on hold that people can share it more easily information which is there uh, over time this issue of cybersecurity, privacy in some countries they are trying to set up unified bodies to really deal with these kinds of issues just as the basis of national security is a centralized subject in the area of healthcare, is that issue come up and uh, the other issue i wanted to ask you is that uh, the idea that i presented to you in the case of students in the universities the safety of them in colleges and all the particular act is called the Genie Clary Clare Act. That's the name of the term which is there and has been uh, very useful in terms of increasing the safety and informing the information. Has that kind of an issue been raised that to your knowledge, would that be a way to really improve the quality of health services and take care of cases before they become too severe against one particular doctor or medical practitioner? So regarding cybersecurity, yes, it's absolutely a, a concern uh, of our office of the Department of Health and Human Services. Obviously, it's a, a national concern. Um, uh, cyber intrusions and um, have been in the news a lot lately, as we all know, and it, it affects healthcare uh, as much as or more than uh, many industries. And so we've seen major breaches at insurers and uh, hospitals, ransom, ransomware type uh, attacks on, on hospital systems. And we have, you know, a small shop of cyber investigators in our office, and we have a, uh, an audit team that focuses exclusively on cybersecurity, both at the department and its systems and at uh, the provider community um, and, and their systems, because we recognize that uh, just in the, in, the, in the claim system itself, that there's so much rich data there that could be um, uh, taken advantage of and, and misused uh, by criminals. Um, and not to mention the types of data that will be collected as we continue down the path of telemedicine and new technologies that are used to interact with and collect data or store data about patients. Uh, it, it's an ongoing and continued concern. It's a growth area of, of review for us and we're investing resources there. Regarding your second question, I don't think I've heard of that situation being raised to our level, but it wouldn't necessarily have come to the OIG. It might've gone to um, you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Great, thank you. Uh, do you have any question to ask of me, for example, at this point, either of you? I think we're at time. Okay, so yeah. I think we have run out of time as far as we can tell. So thank you very much, folks, and uh, really appreciate your contribution and your views and the viewpoints, and we can talk offline after this. Okay. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.